You're listening to Real Investor Radio with Craig Fuhr and Jack Bevere, where we cover advanced real estate investing topics to help you stay ahead of the curve in your real estate investing business. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to Real Investor Radio. I'm Craig Fuhr with Jack Bevere. Jack, good to see you today. Absolutely. Good morning. I believe we are up to episode 1818. How about that? It's, it's great. They're flying by. Lots of great stuff going on. So excited to keep this going. Yeah, I got to be honest, man. I've been getting uh, some feedback from uh, the folks that have been listening. It's been positive. I don't know if whether or not they're just friends and they're being kind. I always tell people, hey, look, give it to me straight. Don't sugarcoat it. Just tell the truth. And everybody's been super cool, man. I, I think uh, folks really enjoyed uh, two two or three episodes ago. We did the uh, episodes with Logan Motoshami from Housing Wire. It was a lot of great information. We're going to kind of touch on some of that today a little bit. And then uh, our last two episodes were with uh, Franklin Cruz down in Florida, an old friend of mine who's now building some really cool affordable housing, which uh, I personally believe is going to be the guiding topic in housing over the next 10 or so years with, um, with uh, just sort of the changing demographics of the country um, in terms of home buyers and people who are coming into the United States right now. That's going to be a massive affordability issue. So Franklin is sort of at the forefront of all of that. I'd urge everybody to go back and take a look at those episodes and then maybe look up uh, what he's doing down in Florida. It's pretty inspiring. He's building some smaller houses that have a lot of character and uh, it was really cool to talk to him. Right, Jack? Yeah, absolutely. He's, uh, you know, obviously a consummate entrepreneur and it's amazing how he's kind of shifted from wholesaling and renovating into the new construction side of things and doing some larger land development deals. Uh, you know, we're, we're seeing that shift among a lot of our borrowers as well, especially in those affordable markets. So, um, yeah, I thought, I thought Franklin's experience was, you know, very salient for what the, what the opportunities are right now in what is otherwise a more challenging environment. Yeah, he and I come from very similar backgrounds and sort of uh, started off as all things real estate, uh, you know, wholesaling, rehabbing, landlording. Uh, Franklin got into sort of the the guru space for a while and uh, really uh, just decided to teach himself uh, from the ground up how to be a developer. And he's learning it as he goes and making every mistake uh, to his credit, um, you know, but uh keeps on persevering and he's doing quite well. So everybody take a look at those episodes. Uh, I believe that was episodes 16 and 17 and uh, lively discussion. I hope to have him back on soon. So Jack, what, tell me, like, give me the 60,000 foot, you know, synopsis of just sentiment. You know, I, I'm talking with a lot of guys uh, around the country right now, and I'm finding that there's a little frustration sort of a, you know, hey, where's this all going? How's it all going to shake out? Maybe a little tiny, a little bit of fear mixed in. You know, you talk to guys every single day out there, man. What's what's your feeling? You know, give me give me the paragraph view there. Yeah. So I think that, you know, over the past couple of weeks, you know, we try to get these episodes out very timely to keep, you know, be, because you know, the market is changing in real time and we're all running our businesses and making changes in business decisions in real time. And I think that the, you know, the most recent couple of weeks have led to some real pessimism as inflation has continued to be stubborn. Jobs have continued, but, but at the same time, the jobs market has continued to be strong, which leads uh, Wall Street and to, you know, we, leads Wall Street to think and the banks to think that the Fed is going to keep rates higher for longer, right? Higher for longer has been what you've heard in the news for the past, you know, couple of weeks constantly. Um, and as a real, you know, as a, as a real estate investor, higher for longer is a very frustrating idea because the deals that we've all been doing for the past 12 months at this point, a lot of the assumptions there were based off of, Hey, we're coming into the worst of it right now. And, you know, within a 12 month period, we're going to get to the other side. Let's do this refinance right now, even though I'm not a fan of the rate, even though I know I'm not going to make much money uh, after I make that mortgage payment. Because in a year or two, maybe on the outside three, I'll be able to refinance and rates are going to get lower and I'll be able to refinance and then there'll be cash flow there. So let's keep kind of keep things moving forward. And, um, 
you know, and there's going to, and we are going to be able to turn these into profitable deals. Well, higher for longer means that you're going to be working for free, right? Working for the bank for longer. And no one likes that idea. Mm -hmm. um, mortgage rates have also, as a result of that same sentiment, uh, you know, now we're at, at highs now they're in the, in the, you know, consumer resi rates are in the, in the sevens. Checked um, it out today, right before the uh, podcast. And we're at, uh, you know, here we are in October, mid-October uh, as a recording today, and it's 7.71-ish today. That is a humongous number for residential consumer lending. That's like, you know, very difficult from an affordability point of view. Uh, and if and as a result, the DSCR loans that investors are getting and the and the loans that the very few banks that are doing lending, what they're putting out there are in the eights. Um, and so, you know, when you're borrowing money in the eights, adding, you know, finding we're finding 10 caps. How many 10 caps are you finding in decent areas, you know, in, in strong in strong markets where you want to own real estate for the long term? Not not too many. So you tell me. Yeah. So it's a. Uh, that, that's been very challenging. And <clears throat> so with residential consumer rates where they are and kind of the, and the spring sell, you know, we're back to school and uh, going into the winter, I think that there's now uh, some concern as to what housing prices are going to do over the next six months or so. Uh, I think it was two weeks ago, I saw that in that single week, 9% of listings nationally took a price drop. Well, don't and get so ahead on me. <laughs> like... So slow it on down. Let's rain it on. So, yeah, man, I, 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 that's the jumping off point here for me, Jack. Um, I, I just the you and I were out the other night, had a great dinner, and we had sort of more of a, I think it was both factual and philosophical on where we find ourselves today, economically, politically, culturally, um, and sort of all of these cataclysmic. Well, I don't. That's a that's a tough word to use. All of these big shifts that um, appear to be seismic in nature, but, but take a long time to occur. You know, if we look at the uh, current interest rates, you have already said headwinds, you know, with, with, with frankly, do you see any end in sight? I was uh, reading an article a couple of days ago where Jamie Dimon was over in India and he was saying, look, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw Fed fund rate at, at 7%. Sometime in the in the in between twenty three and twenty four, which sent shockwaves through the industry, um, but but laid out uh, a, a pretty good discussion on why that might happen. I'd I'd urge everybody to go to the show notes for today. I've got the link in today's show notes where you can go check out that, or or just do a Google on Jamie Dimon seven percent. Um, so. So as, in terms of interest rates, Jack, we're at a Fed funds rate of 5.5% right now. That, that That is, you know, kind of going sideways. And that really is sort of like part of the discussion that we were having the other night. Like we're sort of in this sideways market right now. It's It's got a lot of headwinds. Uh, doesn't appear to be showing any signs of, uh, of, of relief. Uh, volumes are down. Uh, you know, transaction volumes are down. And so what, what's so you just bubbling, those, with you're bubbling with optimism this morning. It's, it's wonderful. You know, well, it gets I mean, worse, I, uh, you know, like, you know, so then, and politically we've got, we've got, uh, a couple of candidates who appear to be bubbling to the top. One of them is, um, can't make it, can't find his way off stage. The other one's got 95 indictments against him. You know, I think we're coming up to a very difficult election season which then changes sort of the sentiment and mood of the country. Um, we've got 7 million plus people pouring across the southern border right now uh, who appear to be the, the world's um, least educated, uh, poorest. Uh, most of them, most of them uh, just read a report the other day. Most of the people coming across the border right now can't even read in their own native language. They're illiterate in their own native language. And again, I'm, that, that's not a commentary on people on the people who are coming. I have no grudge against it. Uh, it's you know how do you how do you absorb all of that into an already ailing economy? How do you absorb all of that into already ailing post-industrial cities across the country? And um, uh, culturally, obviously, we have some some headwinds as well. And so what does all of that mean for the average investor? 
getting back to 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 housing i think i think it sounds like i'm speaking doom and gloom here when in fact i think it presents tremendous opportunity going forward uh, all of this you know these these changes politically these changes culturally these changes economically in our country we are now a post industrial society have been for quite some time you know what does that all lead to and so you know my outlook for the market over the coming months where where I see opportunities we'll get into it later I think there's going to be downward trends in rents um, that that those these blue skies that we've seen in terms of rents you know going through the the moon that has to stop at some point. I think that there is going to be downward trends in in housing prices. We're already seeing that in in many markets across the United States um, and um, I think that there's going to be a real move to affordable housing and those who who can provide it find ways to make money off of that find the spreads in that are the ones who are going to win that's my sort of uh general thesis moving forward and you and you had differing opinions maybe a little bit more um bullish than mine but um well so, yeah, so let me yeah let me ask you like so do you think that because i've heard this i've heard this sentiment a lot there's there is a fair amount of people who um, weren't all in or rather are bringing money from other industries or maybe even raising money and being the operator to take advantage of the opportunities that the next, you know, 12 to 24 months are going to, are, you know, that they're convinced are going to present themselves mm -hmm. a lot, you know, specifically in the multifamily sector with, uh, real estate syndications that are going to be, well, that are upside down from a financing point of view. And, I was talking with somebody yesterday uh, who was uh, who, who is thinking about getting involved with a couple of guys who were um, looking to buy uh, multifamily uh, buildings, you know, looking for value add deals, particularly in the North Carolina market, mm. based off of this thesis that there is going to be a whole bunch, like a wave of busted syndication deals and, you know, just uh, operators that either didn't execute and or uh, their financing gets upside down. Sure. So like, walk me through, like, is that like, is that, you know, from an opportunities point of view, given the, all the headwinds right now, is that the, is that where you think the low hanging fruit is right now? Like there's a lot of people right now who are like, Hey, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm getting into cash. I'm backing off. I'm not doing a whole lot of deals right now. Cause it's still early, but yeah. there's, but, but this is coming. There's an, a wave of opportunities that are going to be coming and everybody who's, you know, got their chips on the table right now are going to be, are going to be sorry because they don't have the cash to take advantage of those situations and real money is going to be made. I think Kiyosaki was lying. Was talk, there was a, a quote from him a couple of days ago talking about how there's going to be a wave of opportunities and getting into cash right now is the thing to do. Um, I mean, is, yeah, that, is that how you see I, it playing I, out? Yeah, that's a great question. I heard Kiyosaki say the other day, if you think I'm rich now, just wait for the next 20 to 24 to 48 months. I'm going to get really rich, which I thought was really funny. And it was along those lines, Jack, of if we hinge this whole thing on credit and the distortion that we've seen in credit over the last 20 years, where is the crisis going to be? I think it's going to be in credit. And so, you know, you remember when we got back in the market, um, back in, uh, I, well, I got in in 20, 2004, and I believe you were like, you came into Dominion around 2007, correct, Jack? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So just, you always like, I always like when you say, yeah, I got in right at the worst time ever, like right as everything was melting down. Right. And so, man, you know, I, I think the the big difference between you and I, Jack, is that you're such a data ana analytical, factual guy, and I go so much, you know, based on the things that I read and my gut. But my gut back then, before I was like a more factual guy, was this can't continue. From 2004 to 2007, every single person who was a full time investor in that market knew that it couldn't continue. We all knew it. And now that, you know, in, in retrospect, when you go back, all the signs were there that the market was slowing quickly, um, you know, that credit was tightening. And while I don't see the the what we're in these days is that same exact scenario, this isn't a, you know, a subprime mortgage crisis. Um, I think there's a reason why 
guys like Jamie Dimon have a trillion dollars of cash sitting on the sidelines. I think there's a reason why Berkshire Hathaway has a trillion dollars of cash sitting on the sidelines, why Apple has, you know, billions of dollars of cash sitting on the sidelines, because I think they I think they know that the buying opportunities are coming. Look, I asked you the other night, do you think that Larry Fink is wrong? A guy who has a $10 trillion company. Now, you know, do you think he's wrong? Do you think he's going to lose? I think the odds are low. I think these are very smart people. Do you think a guy like Ray Dalio, who is really, who's really put out some stunning content over the last uh, 12 to 14 months with regards to sort of the changing of the, you know, of the world economies and sort of the world order, do you think he's wrong? That's a question. What do you think that, I mean, so what do you think the, so you think that there's going to be like, I guess where I, where I trip up is on the mechanics of it. Like the mechanics, like for me, I'm very, I'm very literal. I'm very deep. You know me, I'm very detail oriented. So like in 2007, 2008, 2007, 2008, the mechanics of that time were that the banks were doing too much subprime, uh, you know, no doc lending on secured by residential real estate. And Mm -hmm. then everyone realized that this, that these loans were going to go bad. So they all pulled back. They had so much of it on their balance and the loans did start to go bad. The banks, you know, they weren't, people were not paying at all. Right. It's like people didn't get foreclosed on sending in like 75% of their mortgage check. They had 10 mortgages and they lost their job and they stopped making all payments. And so the bank was, just the bank was forced, you know, their hand was forced and they were forced to foreclose on mass. And as they're taking back REO, as they're taking back real estate owned, as, you know, as they're foreclosing on properties and, and going into title on those properties, they don't want to own it. It's not income producing. So they're sending it out into the market. But since all the banks had that general issue, the availability of bank capital to lend on that Real, those new assets that were hit or those assets that were hitting the market wasn't there. And so, you know, pe- people who came in early got, you know, you, you were catching a falling knife buying real estate in 2007, 2008, even into 2009, mm-hmm. as prices just continued to fall. And if you had excess cash, you kind of, you know, you spent it on, you know, before the bottom. And then, you know, not until 2011 did prices bottom out um, because, Wall Street cash recognized the opportunity and was buying it. But it was it was the assets that were hitting the market that were not financeable, not because there was anything wrong with the assets, but because there were no banks willing to lend secured by that by, by those assets. And that's the and, and, and as a result, we saw this big drop of prices uh, of, of nominal prices. And I don't see that dynamic right now in the residential space. Yeah, uh, the you know the multifamily syndications. I, I think that I think the big difference between the la, you know between the Great Recession and now, from a logistical point of view, is that oh, also the underlying or the underlying fear was that we had overbuilt. Right, there were like just empty houses in Florida for like you know miles, and um, that we had overbuilt inventory given given household formation uh, at that time. And it would might be 10 years before the market caught up with all the inventory that we'd already built. And that was mm-hmm. kind of the prevailing dynamic for, for the while. There was like a, but there was a fundamental supply and demand like mismatch. Whereas today, we if on the residential point of view, there's still these tailwinds of household formation and underbuilding and the uh and 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 occupancy rates are still high. Uh the you know the rent versus buy analysis now uh it's gotten much worse for the buyer um mm-hmm. but it's still not like a no brainer it's not, it still makes sense to buy versus rent often or in in many markets uh, in a lot not, of markets not yeah not the west coast but like you know in affordable markets yeah. um and and we still have and, and frankly we have like the 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 emergence of the the DSCR industry and wall street's still buying that paper the rates are high but like they'd still like to lend you the money and those right, well, loans are and those loans are still performing and i think that's that is an x factor right like if the dscr loans start to sp- the default rate starts to spike but i was looking at some uh some data some data that was shared by 
uh, Shelter Growth Capital Partners, who is a, a DSCR loan buyer. Um, and they were publishing some data from Nomura, which is a big Japanese bank that does a lot of securitizations. And it was, it was a, talking about the, the, uh, the non-QM, the non-qualified mortgage loan performance. And in the past four months, non-QM loan delinquency rates have spiked, but primarily in the below 700 FICO uh, category of non-QM As loans. you would think, you know, like that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, which makes right? sense. Yeah, yeah. The investor loans are actually, of the segments that they that they broke out, the investor non-QM loans were actually the best performing and only had a very minor uptick in the delinquency rate. So my point being, I'm, I'm down a rabbit hole here, but my point being that though that, that product still exists, residential real estate is high, still highly financeable. And I see a much more plausible... Uh, you know, mechanics of this being that to the extent that there are operators that screwed up, right? Either, either, you know, didn't execute their business plan and, or, um, you know, screwed up their financing, right? Where they, they, they didn't buy an interest rate cap. And so, or they didn't raise enough equity and they, uh, they, they weren't able to, to push rents. And so when they go to refinance their three-year bridge loan this year, next year, they find themselves a little underwater um, the equities underwater, but I'm not, I'm not sure that there's going to be too many projects given all the rent increases that we, we have had, had recently where yeah. the, where the, where the debt is actually underwater. And then if the debt's underwater, it's underwater by a little bit. And so to the extent that you've got an operator who's getting, getting up in the morning and going to work and collecting what they can and like operating in any kind of competent way and sending what they can to the bank. I think the bank's going to punt. I think they're going to kick the can. I think that people are so loss averse, like they're so averse to, to losses that they, to the extent that they can kick the can down the road, I think that it's frankly the, the, the smart economic thing for the bank to kick the can down the road and not yeah. line these guys up and shoot them in the back of the head and force this like, uh, you know, wave of multifamily sales. So yeah, let me let me let me jump in there. Go, jump in, there. come on, come on. So that was that was a lot to unpack. I'm taking notes feverishly here. Going back to what you were originally talking about with the subprime, you know that that was sort of the the why of it all, as we like to say back in 2007. Um, well, why did that happen? It's because you know the one one of the major reasons it happened was the Community Reinvestment Act, which was pumping a trillion dollars a year into mortgages that that the GSAs decided that they were going to box stop, and so that was a lot of mortgage money that was being created back then. And so you know what do we have today that's analogous to that? I heard somebody the other day saying that DSCR loans are the new subprime. So whether or not that turns out to be that way or not, I do recall back then that as the market started to shift in 2007, eight, and we could kind of see the writing on the wall, investor properties were actually still performing, you know, in, uh, defaults were still uh, lower than most other, uh, than qualified mortgage defaults. Um, I, I remember it distinctly. I think we could probably Google that right now if we really wanted to, but we won't. That said, I, you know, I feel like we're early in the game here in terms of defaults, Jack. And when you, let's take a look at who would be borrowing, typical borrower, over the last, let's say, three to four years. If it's a guy like me and I've got, you know, or a guy like I, I was back in that 2006, 7, 8 time period, and I was buying some, you know, rentals around Baltimore, marginal neighborhoods, they cash flow great. But the tenants sucked. You know, I wasn't really an operator. I was just a guy with a dream to grow, grow some rentals. How many serious operators out there in terms of the overall market of DSCR loans, Jack? Let's look at the big pie and ask yourself, how many guys are like me who have jobs, who, you know, we're looking for that three to $500 a month cash flow. I get one vacancy that wipes that wipes out the entire year of cash flow, but I don't care because I've already been spending the three to five hundred as if it would never end. Not putting aside reserves. Give me look at that pie of 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 people who who have qualified, by the way, who have qualified for the DSCR loan with a FICO score and a one point two five multiplier. 
That's all it takes. You're going to sign the paperwork because you got a FICO score. What does it take, Jack? 650? 680 is probably the minimum, yeah. 680 credit score and a 1.25 multiplier. Is that right? Yeah, 1.2. And there's, there are, there are 1.0 loans at lower LTVs. You can get even less coverage. All right. So, so, I, so I get your, so, I get wait your a minute. Point. So give me, so answer my question. What do you think the pie is of like super serious operators like you, you and Fred and, and, or guys like me back in the day? I, I don't know. I, I honestly yes, don't know. I think, do. it's a, I think it's a great, I think it's a great question or I think that's a great question. You know, like, Hey, how many folks are real operate? How many, how many people who are active over the past three, four years um, are, are really operators are really like studying their craft and learning sure. and running this like a business versus, you know, Hey, I read that I'm, you know, I heard at a cocktail party that short-term rentals are the things to do. So I'm going to go buy a property at the beach and like short-term rental the thing. I, I agree with you. There's absolutely people of that. Give me, a, category. Give, me, give, me, give me, give me, give me, give me a kind of tell you that the, the delinquency rate's still less than 2%. So, you know, like I'm, I'm a, I'm a follower of the data at the moment, the loans are performing. I hear what you're saying. It's an easy loan no, to no, qualify I'm not, for. I'm not asking if they're performing or not. What I'm asking you is, what do you think the percentage of serious operators who can absorb one month, two months, five months, 10 months, 12 months? I've got five, six rentals in my portfolio that are now sucking me dry for $100, $200, $500 a month because... Maybe the market's changed a little bit in terms of rents. Maybe the guy who I had that was paying $2,200 a month now had to go find a smaller place for $1,600 a month. What do you think the percentage of those people who have taken out DSCR loans are who you know could be able to uh, absorb something like that? I, I, yeah, I know you're pressing me for a number here, but I honestly don't, I, I honestly don't, you know, I don't know, like, you know, we're, when we originating loans, we're asking, for, I'm not, I'm not, you know, we're asking for a FICO and a lease. So like, that's, that's what we're asking for. They've got a good FICO, you know, like, so, the, the, so I would say the vast majority of, of investor DSCR loans are to people who make, who have more than a 740 FICO, because that's where pricing is the best. So you got a strong incentive to do that. And those folks, you know, have a, have a leg up when they're when they're bidding on properties. So I mean, there's a lot of highly you know high credit people who have taken these loans, which is I think a, a significant reason as to why the loans are still performing very well. Under well what we know about most Americans is is that most don't have uh, more than a thousand dollars in the bank to sort of go you know take uh, any emergency, much less a vacancy of one month, two months, or three months. And we'll get in in the next episode, Jack, to sort of the Airbnb bust, as they're calling it. Um, so I urge everybody to tune in for the next episode. But, but man, I I don't listen, man. I think the DSCR loan is a is a really really cool product. I, I, honestly, I think it's a really cool thing. One of the things I guess that bothers me about it is no income verification. Mm -hmm. No, is there is there a job verification there? No. No job verification. Well, so the, we're basically the, the house is the business, right? Like the, the, the philosophy behind it is that the income verification is market rent determination and a lease. And the job is operate this house. That's your job. Operate this house. Um, so, it, you know, it, and the income could, should be able to, and so the income to pay the loan is going to come from the operation of the real estate. It's not like we've got to, we haven't, we haven't seen really declining rents. We haven't seen, um, uh, and, and we haven't seen a recession right yet, right? Like, and I, I'm going to concede the idea that a recession is a total X factor here. No one's really been stressed. Like, the stress level is rising, but we have not seen significant layoffs. The jobs reports are still, you know, very strong. Yeah, we're currently at three point three point eight percent unemployment. I mean, it's you know, yeah. So the you know the the those the part timers that you're talking about, they haven't been stressed, right? They do still have a W two income, and if they get laid off, they can find they're finding another one like right away. So, in a stress tested environment, uh, you know, by the way, one, are we going to have a stress tested environment, or is the Fed going to soft land this thing? So we may never find out, right? You may be right, and we never find out because you know, the, the economy just stays strong and the W-2 income makes up any shortfall for those couple months that, that the property goes down. I think that, I think we're going to see it first in the short-term rental thing. So we'll get into that in the next episode. I think that's a, a worthwhile conversation to dig into. I think that's yeah. probably the, the, that'll be the tip of the spear. We see that first. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, already, I, I, and by the way, in that in that uh, episode, I'll go through ten markets in the country right now that have seen significant downturns in both rents, short term rents, and and um, revenue. So you know, uh, we'll talk about that in a f- in a few minutes. But um, but let me ask you this: Why do you, getting back to sort of the the Kiyosaki's and the you know the pontificators of the world? Why would a guy like that say that he's going to get? You know, if you think he's rich now, he's going to get even more rich over the next twelve to twenty-four months. Why do you feel like he he's projecting those? You know, that type of thing. Why? He, what does why he see? He thinks what's he seeing? Yeah. What does he see that maybe? You know, I feel like I might be seeing it, but like maybe you're not not really tracking with it. I think that may, maybe he thinks that he is like in with enough of the uh, educators and uh, you know people who are teaching people how to syndicate um, that they are going to get access to those situations. Mm. Maybe maybe he just thinks he's in the catbird seat to take advantage of that particular opportunity, and I think there's a, there's a strong argument to say that he has right. Like the the newbie syndicator over the past five years is the one, you know, not that all of the newbie syndicators are going to get themselves into trouble, but the of everybody who gets themselves into trouble, there's going to be a lot of them who are new, you know, newbies. So talk more talk more macro, not necessarily just you know housing. What does he see? you know, economically, et cetera, you know, why, why does uh, JP Morgan have a, a, a trillion dollars of cash sitting on the sideline right now? Uh, you know, is it because, you know, they're, they're looking at more banks that, uh, like uh, SVP that failed where they came swooping in like the vultures to, to buy up uh, assets for pennies on the dollar? What do they see that maybe we're not talking about? I'm, I'm, see, I'm, you're asking the wrong guy, man. I, I think that this, I think it's overblown. I, I think that it's going to be hard for long, but I don't think that there's going to be this, like, you know, blood in the streets opportunity to, like, you know, gobble, gobble up tons of stuff. I think that, I think that, cert, that I think that the weakest operators are going to, are going to shit the bed because they're, they realize they're, they're just, you know, they're, they're not performing, uh, they're not, they're not operating the property well enough to, to make their mortgage payments, they're going to toss the key, they'll toss the keys um, to, to their lender and their lender is going to call another operator who isn't shitting the bed and restructure a deal and oh, kick the can. Let's, um, you know, I, I'm obviously not going to get Jack to talk about, uh, you know, how I see things, you know, uh, you know, on a more macro sort of why are we in two wars right now? Uh, you know, why do we have $30 trillion in debt adding $2 trillion a year at this point? Why are we, you know, we'll be paying a trillion dollars just in interest on the debt by the end of this year. Um, I think those are the things that really affect where the market is going and where we're going economically. Like I see more of a, of a sovereign debt crisis coming um, than a, you know, hey, can I go buy a house on the corner of Baltimore and Lombard? You know, like I, I just think that that's what, what's going to be guiding a lot of the conversation over the next uh, 12 to 24 months. And I believe you, I, I, I don't think there's going to be, you know, this crazy crash depression. It's going to happen in the one cataclysmic moment. I think it's going to be a very sideways, you know, slog for a while as uh, credit markets figure themselves out and as uh, housing asset prices figure themselves out. Yeah, I, I I hear what you're saying on the macro side. It's hard for me to it's hard for me to to handicap how that's going to affect the real estate market, given that I'm just so bullish on how on the underlying fundamentals of of, of real estate. So, for example, all right, let's I'm yeah, yeah. come in from left field. A you know AI is going to be you know the technology that probably defines the de- next decade. Fair to sure. say. Yep. Any advance in technology is deflationary by nature. You you get Mm -hmm. increased productivity out of it. That keeps prices down. The existing labor is more efficient. So there's, you don't have the labor, uh, you know, the the, uh, power from the labor side to push prices up. So any new technology, technology is generally a deflationary thing, but AI isn't coming for any HVAC guys or electricians. It's coming yeah. for white collar labor in cubicles, right? Like kind of like middle, upper middle, cl- middle class and upper middle class 
um, office workers who are now working at home, right? Like they're the ones who are going to be threatened by, displaced by, or augmented in many cases by, um, by AI. But I don't see anybody lining up to, 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 I don't see, there's no, you know, the, the, the Votex schools are not full. The, you know, the, the trade schools do not have a line at the door and your carpenters, you know, tradesmen, roofers are, they are the, the labor that's going to have tremendous purchasing power. And so I believe what, that. whatever the inflation rate is, I think that the cost to build a house will be above that. Right. Like if, if, if the Fed gets the economy to 2 percent labor, well, construction, you know, I'm sorry, 2 percent inflation, mm. if CPI becomes you know, 2 percent, I think the construction is going to be above that number. And so I still think that as because of that dynamic, that owning hard assets, particularly real estate, should outperform. Your, as an inflation hedge, it'll outperform over the over the next 15 years because of that labor dynamic. So mm. it could all be shit, right? But like, but like, but but economics are relative. So I just want to be like better than everybody else, or you know, but better than the guy, you know, than the guy next to me. And I think that the construction industry and the residential and and, and residential housing is the like for me the safest place to be in this shit show. That's going to be the next fifteen years, which I completely agree with. Um, so, but yeah. that, so, like, that's my the- that's my investment thesis is that like I like this more than than everything else because man, what everything that you just described is absolutely true and incredibly difficult to handicap. Okay, so good left, good good one from left field there, and it kind of brings me to the conversation of like uh, you know a, a transforming economy. So one of the things that I love looking at is sort of, you know, I'm a blue collar kid at heart. My father worked at General Motors. Uh, you know, my, my grandfather was an oil guy. Like, you know, he, he fixed furnaces and uh, not necessarily, he wasn't digging for oil. He was the guy that was out there fixing furnaces. And so if we look at that economy over the course of the, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, a very industrial economy, and then sort of the the downturn of all of that starting in the 80s, where we decided that you know, the American worker that worked in factories wasn't necessarily cheap enough. Let's go out and find the world's cheapest labor. I think that's left us at this point of like, you know, the 80s became a very consumer driven society. That's when we started to see the the lower the, the lowering trajectory of interest rates over time to sort of juice the economy. And one of the arguments is, is that we've run out of tools um, We've run, the central banks have sort of run out of their of their ability to shape the economy, to sort of shape monetary policy in a way that is that can really uh, change the trajectory and um, in a in a positive way, right? Um, that's Dalio's uh, what he's talking about all the time now. Mm-hmm. And so, what I see is a country that is running out of steam in terms of the the better part of the populace. Look, if I'm working in a cubicle and I'm a guy who lives out in the suburbs and I've, I'm doing probably far better than my, than my father did who, um, you know, worked at General Motors, I start to wonder to myself, am I really? You know, my dad had less debt. Uh, he had a pension. He had all of those things that made the American worker feel safe and secure. And as I look around at my friends and speak to guys who I know, I don't know that they feel that same security for themselves or for their children. And I think we live in a time that may, maybe one of the first times in this country where a lot of guys like me, maybe not you, but maybe me, we start to say to ourselves, are we living in a time where our kids will do better than us? I, I don't know. And, and, and maybe that's a little, uh, a little pontificatory, but, um, but, 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 the, but getting back to sort of AI and where we are at in terms of eco- economically in a very large macro sense, I wonder what the economic drivers will be that gets the person who's working at Walmart, the person who graduated uh, college with a four-year liberal arts degree that isn't worth a paper that it's written on, which is really the vast majority of degrees these days. How are these people going to buy a house? How are they going to come out to the burbs and buy my $800,000 house, Jack? 
when they're making 40 grand a year at uh, Walmart or as a barista somewhere. And so I think that we are creating a land of serfs, that we're going to live in this time where interest rates are high, asset prices are high, people have no savings. And I just don't understand how, they're, how, how houses like mine will be sold in the future. I think houses like yours are going to be owned by the HVAC guy who's running a crew and the white collar, the, the go to college, get a white collar job is going to be devalued significantly, right? Like we're, we are externalizing intelligence, right? Oh, yeah. you, you don't, it doesn't matter if you memorize. We're outsourcing intelligence. Like yeah, we're outsourcing intelligence. all the manufacturing jobs. Now we're going to outsource intelligence. Exactly. Exactly. And as a result, what, 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 but, but it's still an economy of humans. And so like the thing, the thing that you can't outsource to intelligence is, is, is the services, right? We become a services economy. You can't outsource yeah. the human to human interaction and people will pay a premium for, and, and so the, I think the economy is going to start paying more and more for those who provide real services, not this like, you know, college intelligence thing, which is now outsourceable on your, on your, on your, you know, on your phone, on your device. And sure. so I, I could see a real shift in, you know, sh a shift down from a relative basis in terms of white collar uh, industries, white collar driven industries and white collar wages. Mm -hmm. An increase, a significant increase in blue collar wages, not just the minimum wage, you know, service worker who can also get outsourced, but the skilled labor that can't get automated, that, that, that they, that labor has power now and they're going to demand it and, and we're going to pay it. And, and I think that, and I think that that's what the future is going to be where you know, people who are excellent at services, who are excellent, like the human to human interaction. Welders. Gonna, Electricians, plumbers, carpenters, waitresses, yeah. like, like, sure. I, I think that, you know, that any, any real human to human is, uh, interaction is going to trade at a premium to what we have witnessed for the past 50 years as that has like, it was devalued for, or it was just not valued for a very long time. And I think that on a relative basis, it's going to, um, it's going to have its, have its day. So I think that there's going to be a big reshuffling. I think there's going to be a big reshuffling. I don't think it's all going to fall off a cliff, but I, I do think there's going to be a significant reshuffling. Yeah. I, I think the only, um, the only uh, fly in the ointment in terms of that is, Jack, is skilled labor is, it takes in some sort of generally an apprenticeship. You know, you don't have to have skilled labor to be a waitress. I get the human to human contact, but Lord knows I've walked into restaurants of late where we've got the robots now that are serving food. And so I wonder how long the waitresses have. Um, so that said, skilled labor, like my dad, who was a pipe fitter, that took an apprenticeship of five years. And so, yeah, there is, you know, call it college for, for skilled labor. One of the things that that is uh, the fly in the ointment there for me is we've got a lot of unskilled labor coming into the country right now who's going to be part of that pipeline. And those people, by their very nature, will ask for less in terms of income. And if you don't think that that's one of the reasons why the you know industry is bringing in that labor right now, um, I, I think that would be short-sighted. You know, when, when the lowest income of people come into the country, it only hurts the lowest income of people. It hurts, it, it, I, you know, the statistics are real. Like it hurts more, in, uh, the biggest impact that bringing uh, all of the least educated, poorest people in right now has the bigger impact on blacks and Hispanics. It's a known fact. And so, um, you know, my hope is that you're right, is that there will be an explosion of blue collared skilled labor in this country and those people will get their day. Um, I don't think that that's gonna happen overnight and I don't think you do either, but um, I still am dubious as to whether or not there'll be enough of them to buy these, buy houses like mine and, and, and houses and the millions of houses like it that are around the suburbs of this country. So um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was gonna say, I, I think that there could be also there's I think there's also probably going to be a reshuffling away from away from higher square footage houses, which has been the case for the past, you know, probably 30, probably 40 years, at least sure. um, probably the whole actually history, you know, probably the, the past 100 years. Um, 
as you know, because of the nimbyism of zoning, builders had a strong incentive to build the biggest house possible given the lot size. That's how they made yeah. the most money. But when you have affordability now becoming that constraint, and I think you know there'll be relatively more weakness in the eight hundred thousand dollar price point versus the three hundred fifty thousand dollar price point. We're already seeing that builders are starting new, on new permits. They're building smaller houses than they were a year ago because Absolutely. because of that affordability issue. Um, so I think that you know, yeah, I think the the, the six thousand square foot house is not going to retain its price per square foot the way a 2000 square foot house is going to. Um, but for a long time, what the, one of the, um, one of the things that I always like, I roll my eyes. Affordability is a big issue, right? And it's like, but the most, and it's the most popular issue right now, but I roll my eyes a little bit because no one ever talks about consumption of housing. They, the, 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 if you look at a graph, I wish I had it handy, but if you, if you look yeah. at a graph of, of the uh, housing per capita, square footage of housing consumption per capita mm -hmm. uh, over the past hundred years, we're consuming more than twice what we were, uh, you know, less than a hundred years ago, 75 so years we're building ago. Houses, we're building houses twice the size that we, that we were a hundred years ago. And still putting a, at least. a, and still putting a four person family into it. We're, you know, bef mm -hmm. bef we just, you know, we used to come, I, I don't know what the number is off the top of my head, but you know, today we consume a thousand square foot, uh, square feet per person on average. Whereas 75 years ago, we only consumed 500 square feet. Well, so like the, the, the solution to affordability is consume less, right? Like just have a roommate or don't have a 200 square foot bedroom or don't have a finished basement, like, and you can afford that. Like, so, and, and, and consuming housing is not like consume the, the, the square footage of housing that we consume is not like a human right, right? Like in, in, in New York, rich people live in thousand square, very, very rich people live in, you know, thousand square foot condos. And in Hong Kong, people consume like far less real estate than we do. It's not because, and they don't hate themselves, right? There's not an incredibly high suicide rate because their consumption of housing is lower. We get used to it. We get used to consuming less, right? It's just a tastes thing. And so yeah. I, 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 think, I think affordability is very important, but no, it's, but in that conversation and the policy conversation, people, it's, it's like, it's like consuming less as a third rail, you know, like, you know, if we don't, if you don't, you know, you know how, you know, consume, how dare 2, you? yeah, consume 2000 right. calories instead of 4,000 calories. And guess what? Your, your, your food costs will go down in half. I, I that's a hyperbolic <laughs> thing. Like I know no, cheap I love, food I and all it. that stuff, but, but I roll my eyes a little bit on, on like, you know, as if we're going to have this wave of homelessness. No, no, no. We're just going to have roommates. Like, I, but yeah, we could have roommates and no one, no, no one really wants to bunk up, but I, you know, I, I think you and I talked about this with like, you know, if we look at the, if just take a look at Baltimore, you know, if you take a look at Baltimore, really any post-industrial city on the East coast, especially, um, or in the Rust Belt, um, all of the, every city looks the same. It starts off with tiny row houses. Then it goes to row houses with porch fronts. They're slightly larger. Then it goes to even bigger ones. And then you start to get out into the outer edges where you've got the single family detached houses that were probably built in the 40s and 50s, you know, and then they get even bigger and bigger. And what did all of those houses become in the 70s when inflation hit, went to the moon, uh, when oil costs shot up? Every single one of those houses became apartments. That's a good point. Yeah, man, you go into you look around your beltway around your city, man, like all of those houses just outside of the inner city proper turned into apartments in the 70s and real the mid 70s to mid 70s and probably into the early 80s. And it's flippers like us that went in and turned them all back into big houses for people because that's what people want these days. And I look at the neighborhoods that I live in and guys who I know live in right now and I ask myself. When will those things start to look like the outer edges of the city? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, and, and frankly, if you listen to a guy like Eric Adams up in New York uh, last week or a couple of weeks ago, did a press conference where he's like, hey, if you got extra space in your house, why not turn it into a place for all of these illegal aliens that, that I'm sorry, migrants that have that need a place to live? Yeah, that's coming. 
that would be that would be the Craig Fear prediction of the podcast right there. That that I believe is 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 the thing the thing that's coming over the next uh, ten to fifteen years. There we go. All yeah. right, well, we've uh, covered a lot. Of top- yeah, we've covered a lot of topics today, and uh, <laughs> gone far afield on a number of things. But uh, yeah. I think we're all just trying to um, figure out how this is all going to fit together. I think that the you know, combination of the higher interest rates for longer is not welcome news to real estate investors right now. We're still concerned about like, are we going into a re- recession over the course of the next six months? What impact is that going to have on housing prices in a high interest rate, you know, high mortgage rate environment? Uh, I, I'm, I'm concerned about the softness over of potential softness of housing prices over the next six months as a flipper. Um, and uh, and then yeah, we now we're going to throw a second proxy war, potential proxy war into the into the equation right now. It's a maybe di- not proxy either. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult uh, it's a difficult environment to say the least to make business decisions um, because there's anything but clarity as to what the next twelve months is going to look like right now. So. Yeah, man, I, I, I appreciate the summary because it, it's spot on, Jack. And I, you know, one of the things I really love is to hear from folks. You know, if, if you find a place in the comments to uh, leave a comment on your thoughts, uh, if you want to shoot an email to Jack or me, I'm at Craig at CraigFewer.com. Jack, uh, Jack, at, Jack at the Dominion Group.com. Yeah, yeah that'd be fun. From I'd you. love that. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be a lot you of fun. Know, this thing that we're doing right now uh, is something that we we enjoy doing. Uh, we did it uh, just a couple of nights ago, and we could go in any different number of directions. But um, I, I honestly, Jack, I, I still maintain that there's always opportunity, especially in crisis. And so um, we've seen it time and time again. And I think that folks just need to keep their eyes peeled on sort of the tea leaves and making sure that you're reading them as properly as you can and then take advantage where you can. Um, so I want to thank everybody for taking the time to listen to this one. Uh, great discussion, Jack. Thank you. Absolutely. Always fun. All right. We'll see you guys on the next one. Uh, this is real investor radio. We'll talk to you soon.